The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everyone. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today. I hope you you all are having a wonderful Monday. The sun is finally out in New Hampshire, and things are melting, and we're very grateful. Um, our show today is um, one that you may not necessarily connect with um, addiction and recovery, but we're going to be talking about grief. And most people who begin their recovery process do so by in some type of grieving process that um, for people who are love and care about the person that has the addictive disorder, you know, we may think that this is great. The recovery's on, you know, we're working toward recovery and everything's going to be good. But for that individual, um, there's a loss. And I, I think that that loss is often underestimated by the individual and by the people that care for them and by treatment providers. And so our guest today is going to help us um, understand that loss better. And she is Dr. Yvonne Kay. And she is um, an international speaker with subjects ranging from spirit soaring and laughter roaring to post-traumatic stress disorder and bereavement. She is a storyteller, an addictionist, a care sharer, a veteran radio talk show host, and an interfaith minister. She's an author, columnist, keynote speaker, and trainer for corporations. Um, Her work is eclectic and appropriate for all professions, be it the Veterans Administration or um, people that treat mental illness and substance use disorders or people that have had long-term chronic illnesses. Um, Believing in the power of the human spirit, Dr. Kay is a strong advocate of humor and spirituality, and um, she has uses her own life experiences as a basis for her work, and she is currently working with first responders, nurses, veterans suffering with PTSD, and people with addictive disorders. She is a spiritual coach, and her philosophy is laughter is a miracle healer. Thank you, Dr. Kay, for um, spending this hour with us today. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. It's uh... This subject is a passion of mine and has been for years, so being able to speak about it is a delight for me. Thank you. So could you explain, um, first of all, how did you get interested in grief work? Um, it's in, it's a, that's a good question. I um, Really, my whole life, I'm, I'm a, a child of the Second World War um, in Europe, in London, uh, where we were bombed out three times, and even as a small child, I was able to watch what happened when people lost people to death or injury um, and how they responded or didn't respond. And it's almost been like second nature. It's something I've really understood. And then 
I decided um, when I went for my master's degree from Marywood University, I actually taught through my master's degree because they couldn't find anyone to teach that particular subject uh, for me, the way that I saw it. And then being involved in addictions too and in working in prison also, I found that um, when, when people were deprived of their freedom or they came from their best friend, their drug, their alcohol, whatever it was, that they went through a very similar process of people who had lost someone to death or through divorce or a job. Um, and I just became totally intrigued. It, was, it was, wasn't a difficult transition for me. It's just been a life purpose. And the other you know, thing is that um, I've had a battle on my hands for years because so many of the rehabs in which I've been involved don't quite see it the way I see it. So it's been since 1974 I've been on this track to, to prove that this is a grieving process in recovery from addiction because once you leave your rehab, then what? You've still got right. the grief situation, especially if you've gone into treatment with an already existing grief situation. You've still got that situation, so where are you going to put it? And how better to deal with it than when you're actually in, in an inpatient rehab? So that's right. the story. Well, um, I, a couple things. I, I'm fascinated by the fact that um, as a young child, you experienced the, the blitz in London. And I'm wondering, do people become so accustomed to loss that they don't even feel the grief or feel the loss anymore? I mean, if you get bombed out three times or you're in repetitive traumatic situations, do you just become numb to the grief? You could put it that way, but I think it's more like a combination of uh, denial and survival, the two things together. Um, Oftentimes, I mean, people have even said that to me, even today, you still have some form of post-trauma from all those years ago. Yes, you do. doesn't mean that you don't overcome it. Um, there was a phrase in the novel I read once by Nora Roberts, and she said, overcoming is not the same as getting over. And that is so very, very true that people can get over, respond, um, but get on with their lives, which is what happened in my case. So it's very, very important for the staff, especially in rehabs, to understand that this is most definitely a process. I was trained, I did some training with Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross um, and also um, Dame Cicely Saunders, who was the founder of hospice. And that was their philosophy too. It, it doesn't just go away. It needs to be addressed. You can't be afraid of it. So that's where I am. Yeah, I, I think that um, when I was in nursing school back way back, um, mm-hmm. Dr. Kubler-Ross's um, work was just really being um, integrated into healthcare and looking right. at the different stages of grief. And when I started working in addiction, I remember we used to do a group in in a it was a typical twenty eight day program where we talked about grief and we talked about the different stages that people went through in terms of you know, their own kind of surrender, if you will, to their recovery or, or their addiction. And, um, and I'm surprised to hear you say that, that it's been so negatively embraced because mm-hmm. it makes so much sense. Well, I can understand it in one area. When you're working 
with addiction that some of the counselors will say, well, you know what, they use that experience as an excuse not to deal with their addiction. It's just another game they're playing. And in some circumstances, I'm sure they're right. But what is really important is your own education. It's, I've done it for so long now that I can sense if someone's in a grief situation without them telling me. And so the training of the staff and people who are involved with anyone with a life-threatening illness, which is what addiction is, needs to be aware of it and also to know that it doesn't start at step one and end at step six. It depends on the personality of the person. Some people go straight into anger. Some people go straight into denial. Some people go into um, this bargaining situation. And it's very different. And also, my levels of grief from Elizabeth Cooper Ross are slightly different. I don't use the word denial. I use the word shutdown. Um, I don't use acceptance. I use adjustment because life is a series of adjustments. And certainly, an addicted person has to, un- has to surrender and accept their addiction. But the adjustment comes either through the steps or therapy and learning that they're not crazy and that this is a normal reaction to an abnormal situation, that there is a process, but it varies according to the personality. And that's something that people really have to learn. The other big, big thing is that people tend to believe, and I know I'm sounding as if I'm generalizing, of course a lot of people believe what I believe, but um, they, when they think of the word grief, they mostly think of the word death. And death is only one aspect of loss. Loss is huge. Loss of a job, loss of country, divorce, adoption, fostering. I mean, I can just keep on and on. Losing your hair when you have cancer. These are all major losses that are part of a grieving process. And so it's much, much bigger than most people think. When I teach the course, in fact... um, I'm a consultant to the Living Grim Foundation in Ben Salem and, and I'm doing a, a workshop for the staff and uh, local rehabs on that very subject coming up March 6th because they realize that I'm making a point that's valid. You know, people come into treatment and they've lost a lot of people in their lives and they're still battling with their recovery. So it really, really, really has to be addressed. It's so important. Well, and, and you also have to, you're also losing a way of life that, while it hasn't been healthy, it's been your way of life, it's been your friends, it, it's been, you know, alcohol and drugs are how you get comforted, it's how you deal with your thoughts and your feelings, and, and that's a huge loss. You, there's such a big vacuum when people stop using alcohol mm-hmm. and drugs. Yep, you're absolutely right. And, of course, you said the, one of the most important things is losing friends. Yeah, the friends that they've had—that's a huge loss. Their drinking buddies or whatever, they really, with people placing the things, can't hang around with them anymore, and that's a, that's a disaster to some people. That is really, really frightening. The other aspect of this, and you mentioned families, we talk about addiction being a family disease, but there's not enough emphasis on the family in terms of grieving. The person that went into treatment isn't the same person but came out of treatment. The child that they loved and nourished turned into this person 
who was out of control, who was possibly close to death at some time, that's grief. It's all grief. And the families need to be included in that so that they understand what's going on. You know, I think that um, when we talk about grief, when I was younger, when somebody passed away, there was a three-day um, visitation. The wake was mm-hmm. for three days. Mm-hmm. And the whole family gathered for that wake. And and being from Irish descent, it was it was a joyful celebration most of the time. I mean, people cried, but it was reminiscing and storytelling and and the casket was opened and and now it's like two hours in the afternoon and I and I think like, wow, we've really shortchanged ourselves because in having that support and doing that reminiscing, um, that was very helpful, at least it was to me. And, you know, this kind of very short window of of being able to grieve, um, I don't think is very healthy. Well, actually, it's rather funny you should say that because I'm half English, half Irish, and I would love a keening to come back. There are people who feel comfortable enough to cry and howl for a couple of hours if that's what they want to do. Um, it's it's in, more impersonal in some ways, but what I'm finding as an interfaith minister, I do a lot of funerals and memorial services, that the older the person certainly has become more of a memorial service than a funeral these days where people do exactly what you say. They have memories, things that made them laugh, you know, the funny, funny things that people did um, in their lives and sharing photographs and stories. This is all part of the recovery process. And there are still places like, for example... I've been involved with an organization called the Compassionate Friends. I'm sure you know of them for years. Uh, It was created by a chaplain in a hospital in England years ago where he dealt with, I think it was three young women who had stillborn babies. And there was nothing, absolutely nothing at that time. So he sat around the kitchen table with these three women and created what is now known as the Compassionate Friends, which is now international. It's in every, just about every country in the world. Um, and it's a support system for the families who've lost a child to death. And they're absolutely remarkable. They're, um, it's like a support group, not, not, not a 12-step, it's a support group. And they have international conferences, and, and they're remarkable. And I, some of the patients that I've had have had the death of a child and they've had to deal with their own addiction. And I always say to them, you have to go to your stress program for your addiction because they won't understand your grief. And you have to go to the compassionate friends for your grief because they won't understand your addiction. And that's and we'll be right back very well. Right this commercial to talk more about that. Thank you. Okay. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step by step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now your baby is in your arms and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuso to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Our guest today is Dr. Yvonne Kay, and we're shining a light on um, the grief that people experience when they enter recovery and um, give up their addiction. And uh, our last segment, we were talking a little bit about um, the whole concept of grief and recovery and grief with addiction. And um, and Dr. Kay, you were saying that people can enter into grief at any stage. Could you say a little bit more about that? Because... You know, we were taught that there were very distinct stages that you traveled between one to the next and you mm-hmm. you exited acceptance. Yeah, so. I don't see it that way at all. Um, I, I mean, I learned a lot from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and I, and I respect those stages, absolutely, but they don't always come in that order. If you're the kind of person who has always been in control, then possibly they can get in that bargaining situation uh, first. Other people whose main emotion is anger, it's going to get angry immediately. Um, so it depends on your personality, which way you're going to go, where you're going to start. You end up doing all of them, but it's in, in a different uh, process. It would be very nice if it started at one to five, but it doesn't, and they go in and out like people do with relapse, in and out, um, because their expectations are not conducive to the, the recovery that are, 
that's expected, and that's very, very difficult for a lot of people to deal with. So one of the things when I train people, I say to people, because um, I've experienced this myself, my own grief issues, that someone very, very well-meaning, a professional will say, oh, you're in the anger stage. That's great. You'll get over this. <laughs> Not a good thing to do because people maybe don't feel that anger. The professional might sense it, but it may not be so. So the idea is for the professional to fully understand what those steps are, be conversant with them, and be able to work with the person without actually saying, well, this is where you are. Because what that does, it diminishes the thing they're grieving on. They immediately think, oh, then it's not that important because I'm right in this list of things like everybody else. But it was different. And I've worked in grief, as I said, since 1974. Um, I worked with the parents of murdered children and families who've lost a child to death that primarily. And they get that all the time. And it's really, it's kind of discourteous when one assumes that this is the stage that you're in because they don't understand it. Anyone who's experienced the death of a child has the first two years of total confusion. So it needs to be with the professional who understands those processes. Is that clear? Was, was I clear with that one? Yes, I think that's very clear. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, you know, um, life is not that simple. And certainly the way we um, work through our own issues is very individualized. Um, I know when I was 33, my best friend dropped dead very suddenly, and I can remember it took me three years to get through everything internally that that, that created for me. And, and then after that, I kept thinking, well, like, wow, if it took me three years, maybe it takes other people longer than yeah, six weeks. it does. You know? It, yeah. Um, yeah, it's right. And what, if I may share one of the things that drives me round the bend, may I? Sure. Oh, that was an English phrase, round the twist, round the, you know, drives me nuts, is when we have these terrible, terrible catastrophes, like the school shootings and things like that, that you get these people up there and the first words out of their mouths are, and the healing has begun. Well, good luck with that. Because if they start grieving within two or three years, that's early. They've got to deal with their helplessness, hopelessness, pain, um, angst, whatever you want to call it, and the knowledge that their child, through a violent act of someone, because we're not as respectful about mental illness in this country that we should be, are suddenly going to heal? It's not, it doesn't work that way. And so what happens is that people who are grieving, they get in this, it's kind of bizarre. It's like a competitive situation where they look at others and think, hmm, I'm not as far ahead as they are. I can't be doing it properly. And that's a disaster. So what I'm saying is the people who can command great audiences say irresponsible things that cause more harm than good. And it's, it's really sad. And, and uh, I try and deal with these some politicians who tend to do that, and they have listened, and they don't do that anymore. Uh, and I know that they do it with all the goodwill in the world, trying to say, well, we're behind you, but, you know, they still go back to their families, and these people who are suffering are still suffering. So we've got to be more aware of that, I believe. So 
this is kind of a difficult question, but for our audience, what does grief feel like for people? Well, your it varies. Grief, it varies. I don't know if you've ever seen any of these documentaries, so-called documentaries on grief sometimes where people are kind of sitting in the, a car, a circle, calmly talking about it. I've had people run into my bathroom and throw up. I've had them climb on my lap uh, because they're so despairing. They just don't know what to do. So to describe that, it is raw. Um, it's like I, the term I've created is, it's like emotional amputation. It's like your heart being ripped out of you and you're looking for what's going to beat. Um, the utter despair and not being able to do anything about it, the utter confusion uh, is, is there in just about every avenue that I can think in that kind of situation, a sudden death like that. Although, you know, with the last breath, every, every death is sudden. Uh, when I worked in the prisons, people that they watch the first 24 hours is because they go through that whole process in 24 hours. The freedom is taken away, that loss of freedom and uh, having to um, conform to a very rigid policy is something that is very confusing. People who go into detox, into rehab, they don't know what they're supposed to be doing right away. So they can go. I had, was working with nurses with addiction just this morning, and two of them are in that stage. They don't know what to do, what to think, where to go. The shame and the guilt is overwhelming. So it's, it's a huge, huge question. And to actually feel it is uh, the best way I can tell you that some of the people have told me is that they feel as if their guts have been ripped out. That's Are shame and guilt part of grief or is that a different process? I'm sorry, say that again. Are, are shame and guilt part of grief or is that a different process? No, it is part of, of the shame and grief because most people who have gone through something like that always believe they could have done something more, especially in the case of suicide. They always felt that there should have been a sign, whatever. Really, there aren't any signs unless the person isn't serious about taking their own lives and want to give some kind of indication and say they're going to kill themselves. But the people who really mean it, do it. They don't leave signs. You might find someone, for example, you might find a teenager who has all his music and loves his music and starts giving it all away and you think, hmm, what's going on here? But there isn't anything, I, I've worked with suicide since I was 18 years old. I was a Samaritan in England. Um, and the guilt and the shame is usually on the part of people who love these people so much and simply don't understand it. Like a brilliant child that goes away to college has always excelled in school and all of a sudden this terrible dis depression happens and they either attempt or succeed at suicide. Well, the families have no idea what to do with that. But they always, I would say, without exception, always find something to blame themselves for. They should have spotted it. They could have done something to help. And that's not true. But that kind of guilt is very, very challenging to deal with. Uh, sometimes it's a form of protection rather than look at the reality of the situation. How is it possible to grieve if you're carrying that much guilt? Well, it's, that's where the confusion comes in. 
They don't know that this is a part of grieving. It's a part of their own personal process. That's why I say that you can't really do one to five. Um, it's something that the, the guilt and the shame comes with being somebody who has not lived up to somebody else's expectations. I mean, I hear it all the time in the rehab that, that their use, usage of whatever they used has hurt so many people and the shame and guilt around that. And I have to teach them, you know what? You're going to learn about your character defects, believe me. But you've got to look at your character assets too because that's the only way that's going to turn this around for you to get to the point where you can make amends for some of these things. And one thing I need to add because it's very, very important. Not everybody can do this. Not everyone can deal with death. You, there's a lot of things that I'm apprehensive about. And, but when it comes to dealing with death and loss and grief, I'm totally fearless. And that's where people need to be. You can't be afraid of, of death and people's reactions to do this work. You can learn about it, and I think that's the first step. But people who feel that they should, quote-unquote, be able to do this are being really, really too hard on themselves. Not everybody can do this. You know, I have a friend who's a, um, a chaplain, a hospice chaplain. She's marvelous. But if the illness has anything to do with people's respiratory um, situation, she can't handle it. So she doesn't go to that, but she can do everything else. And that's what people have to focus on. That I mean, I, I'm not very good at family work or, or dealing with young children in recovery. This is my passion, um, and that's what I love to do. So if people want to learn about it, that's great. And if they find that it's just not up their alley, then leave it alone. And we'll be right back after this commercial. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence based practices, consensus practices, and old fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. You read about it in health news every day. Cancer rates are going up. Obesity in the U.S. is on the rise. Heart disease and diabetes are top killers every year. We can follow the advice of our doctor, but cravings persist. Weight goes up and energy is still down. It doesn't have to be like this. Tune in for Body Balance Talk with your host, Jeannie Schmidt, along with Lucy and Madeline. You'll learn how you can work with your body to feel better and look better, too. Body Balance Talk airs live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking today about grief and recovery, and our guest is Dr. Yvonne Kay, who is um, a storyteller, an addictionist, uh, a veteran radio talk show host. She's an interfaith minister as well as an author, and she is a keynote speaker, and she is a whole lot more than that. Um, before we went to break, we were talking about... Um, how not everyone can, not every professional could do this work of helping people through their grief. And during our break, you said a little bit more about that. And I was wondering if you could share what, that with our audience, Yvonne. Well, thank you. Yes, you actually came up with the phrase that we're thought in our profession to be all things to all people, and that is absolutely impossible. Um, I'm not a mathematician, but I know I can't give what I don't have. So I have to take care of me in order to take care of others. And the story I told you very briefly was when I graduated high school, when I was 18, I wanted to be a probation officer. And in England at that time, you didn't have to go to college. You were apprenticed, which I think is a very good thing. I like that. And I was apprenticed to a probation officer from Scotland Yard. And I was one of those kind of people that wanted to save the world and take everybody home with me and make them all well. And I remember him saying to me, Yvonne, Remember this, you can't win them all. And I never forgot that. And believe me, that saved me from burnout a lot of times. So we have to look to our own good health uh, and our own taking care of the other life away from work to have that boundary very, very clear cut um, and learn emotional detachment, which I learned from the 12-step program. And that really, really is important. The other thing is, to learn to listen, you know, I always figure if I keep my mouth shut long enough, people are going to tell me what I need to hear in treatment. And that is true. I mean, I do exchange. We have conversations. But the idea is to learn to listen because some people are saying things not with words that you will understand, you as a professional. The other thing I, is mentors. I still have mentors. And I've been at this for... 65 years I've been in this profession, so I'm one of those oldie, oldie things. Not quite, 60 years. Uh, but I still have mentors, and they come in, in strange forms. You know, it could be just a one-liner that somebody says, but my primary men mentor where I learned all these things was a man called Dr. Victor Frankel, who wrote an extraordinary book called Man's Search for Meaning, which he wrote in the 1940s. And in this book... He said, people make conscious decisions on the way they feel and what they do. And I thought, hmm, that's very nice if you can do it. I mean, if your life is wonderful. But he wrote that in Auschwitz concentration camp where he had no rights at all. Brilliant as he was. Um, the United States invited him to come here, but he wouldn't come without his parents, wife and brother. And they couldn't get visas. So he ended up in four concentration camps and lost his entire family. 
But the fact that this man with no rights at all, suffering the way he did, could say, not only say, but live, people make conscious decisions on the way they think and what they do. And I've run with that. doesn't mean to say I don't have lousy days sometimes, but again, that's my choice to have a lousy day. No one's making me do that. And so he, I mean, his writings is just extraordinary. And that book is still in the top 10 of all time. It's a very small book, but it's magic. And it's actually, it's a kind of love story, really, with his wife, um, memories of his wife and how that sustained him during his grieving process. So there's a whole lot of things um, that people can, if they're aware, can hear things that just suddenly make a whole lot of sense. Really brilliant stuff. I would imagine that for any family members that are listening to this to this show, that um, it's important for them to understand that they have their own grieving process as well, um, and that they don't underestimate that. That's very true. They also have the other problem of being codependent. If you have someone who's in treatment, or if you you try to make matters better for people rather than encourage them to make matters better for themselves, then you end up with, in this codependent situation where everybody and everything is more important than you are. That is not healthy. I remember when I went in for treatment for adult child issues years ago to the Karen Foundation, the first thing out of the, the counselor's mouth when we had a large group instruction was, my mother died in January from codependency. And that's because when you have an addict in your family or you have a really severe grieving process, you don't take care of yourself. I teach a course called Care for the Caregivers for that. And it is remarkable how people really, when they look at it, they absolutely do not take care of themselves. Their whole um, concentration is on the others. And that's where the families really need them. That's why I'm a strong believer in Al-Anon. Uh, at Living Grim, we have a family group for frat members, you know, first responders and so on. Uh, they have something called um, the Day of Enlightenment where people come and learn about all these things. We just can't afford to leave the family out. The problem is when families say, well, I don't have the addiction, I don't need to go. Why, why would I want to go to a meeting? I don't have the problem. Not realizing that they do. That we're all part of this. And there are... I would ag- advocate that they make sure that they go to meetings, they get sponsors of their own, and also, if that isn't enough, go for therapy. Therapy isn't for sick people, it's for people who want to feel better. There's no shame in going to a counselor. And the other specific... Um, is that when people are in this grief situation, they really need to go to a grief counselor because we are different. The process is different. With other people, psychologists, whatever, they do what they do and they do extraordinarily well. But if this is a grief issue, people really have to know about that. Now, in our hospitals around here, they have actual um, little organizations for to deal with grief. They have a widows and widows, widow and widowers group. Um, they have things for the children who've lost their parents to death. All kinds of different things have sprung up. Um, and I'm pretty sure they're everywhere. 
So it's, it's a question of getting on good old Google again and finding out where these things are. But I would definitely but I'm not sure that there's to sort a those out. For, for individuals who are entering recovery. I mean, they, there's certainly the 12-step groups, but in terms of looking at grief in the treatment setting for people that have mental illness or addictive disorders, I don't know that, that uh, there's that rich of a pool to draw from. Um, you mean in terms of organizations that can help? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, grief. up here we have um, a very strong The Families of the Mentally Ill, which cover addiction too. Do you have that? We have NAMI, but they're not quite as strong on addiction. Oh, they are, they're, they're pretty strong here. What we yeah. have to deal with families too, and I see this all the time, is the shame they feel when a child has died from an overdose or a family member has died from an overdose as if it's their fault. And that definitely needs attention, and that's why the Compassionate Friends is so important because whatever your family member from wherever they died from, there's no judgment there. It just is. And you're treated with love and compassion and acceptance. And that was the purpose of the beginning of the Compassionate Friends and the parents of murdered children, um, uh, all kinds of against violence things, uh, victim services. They do a lot of that stuff also. Do you have victim services in your area? Um, we have some. We have some, yeah. So they, they're all involved up here in, in grief work. Yeah. I was thinking more for people who it's not death that they're grieving, but the loss of their their addiction or the loss of their identity as a as a healthy person, you know, those kinds of grief. Well, the only thing that I've seen so far and I'm hoping to make a change here is the outpatients, if we can train the people there outpatients. And also for for people to really look for these support groups, a lot of the hospitals have them. And they're not a hospital thing, but they give them the space and, and it's uh, usually organized and they have a counselor involved there. Uh, to restore themselves, I also believe in the spiritual side of things and I'm not talking about religion here, I'm talking about anything that works, if it's Reiki, if it's massage, whatever it is that can relieve the stress to a certain extent that the person can realize that they have what it takes to get well. Just this morning, one of the nurses, I was asking them, tell me what your character assets are. You, you're going to learn enough about your character defects. And one of them said to me, I've realized that what I want to be in my recovery is what I used to be, so I know it's still there. And that's the kind of thing, whether they do it through guided imagery, meditation, all these other aspects of it are very, very important as a backup to regular, authentic treatment. And, and I do believe in alternative health methods. I absolutely do. And then people who have a religion that works for them, then get to the church, get to the synagogue, get to the wherever. Um, if you can link up there. Here, a lot of the churches have recovery programs, and you don't have to be a member of the church or a member of that specific religion either. Uh, but you need to go where you don't feel afraid. The reason you hear a lot of laughter in the programs, even in the Compassionate Friends, is because people feel safe there. And no one's going to judge them. And that's one of the biggest fears of people when they leave the rehab and get back into the world, certainly the people, the first responders, that they're going to be judged. So you need to be with people, whether it's a sponsor 
or a group of sponsors um, that you can feel feel safe. That's a big thing. You mentioned safe. you mentioned laughter. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I believe that laughter is a huge part of spirituality, and um, and again, that's a choice. And the big thing is to learn to laugh with, not laugh at. Laugh at is a derogatory. It's a put down. It's a terrible thing. Um, but laughing with is sharing things. And when we, we're in group, people sometimes share things that were funny in their life before. Um, I remember one young woman, she said, because we were talking about uh, how many deaths there are as a result of people texting. And she said, well, I was texted, uh, texting and I was uh, in a car accident and I just looked at her. And she said, no, I was walking and texting and a car hit me. Didn't hurt about it. And everybody went to absolute hysterics, laughing about this whole situation, including her. And we'll be right back with more on laughter uh, right after this commercial. Thank you. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Do you or someone you love struggle with Alzheimer's disease or some other disorder? Many times, there is not an adequate support forum where you can learn from and discuss topics from top guest experts. Tune in to Neuromatters, The Brink of Alzheimer's with Dr. Sam Brinkman. Although thought of as a disease that affects only older individuals, increasingly symptoms are being found in people who are in their 40s and 50s. Get the answers. Neuromatters airs live Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Um, welcome back, everyone. Our guest today is Dr. Yvonne Kay, and we're talking about grief. And 
In this segment, we're going to talk about um, laughter being the miracle healer or the best medicine. Um, before we talk about that, Dr. K, could you just share with our audience how people could get a hold of you or learn more about um, yeah, I have a I have a web page. Yeah, just Um and then that gives my phone number and any information that people might want. And my books, I'm afraid, are all out of print. Oh, <laughs> but uh, I mean, they can be got on Amazon. Um, the first one, actually, the child that never was grieving your past to grow into the future. That. That was the big one that came out that people responded to. There was a lot about grief in that. But they so get laughter. That. How do we how do we harness laughter to help us with our grief? Then you had mentioned about the the young woman who got hit while she was walking and texting. Yes, and she thought that was funny, and I thought if you think that's funny, then it's funny. One of the things that that people don't understand is that you have to respect grief and that um, just because people can laugh it doesn't mean that they're not still in pain from the grief and some people tend to say oh look they're doing well Uh, it might just be at that particular time they thought of something funny so I'm going to tell you the story of Rosalie because this is one of my I've got tons of stories but people who are uh, in recovery or who are in the last stages of their lives become very honest. Um, and a very long story short was that I knew um, Rosalie's daughter and she had a terrible accident. She was a vital woman, terrible accident, became a quadriplegic and then said to her daughter once, I want that English woman to come. I want to talk to her. So I went, did house visits, which I do. You have to do that in, this, in bereavement. Um, and I saw her several times and she was a very feisty woman. I loved her. And then one night I got a call at midnight, I had to get over there, and she said to me, I'm going to die on Tuesday. So I said, okay. Um, but I, this is what I want you to do. I want you to do my funeral. Okay. So come here. Come right up to the bed, and I want to tell you something. So I said, fine. But remember, I'm not a priest, Rosalie, so I don't do confessions. <laughs> she said, well, let them all get out of the room. And by the way, I don't want my sister to speak, and I don't want my brother to say anything and she's giving me all these orders right she's in the last days of her life and so come very close I want to tell you something I want to tell you something so (laughs) I was almost in the bed with her and she said to me did you hear the story of the man who died and went to heaven and she's telling me a joke the lot and when I did her funeral service I did exactly what I just told you and I told the joke because that's who she was And the laughter and the humor comes with people who are, quote, unquote, sorry for people. Don't do that. Let them be who they are. That was her personality. That's who she was. That's how her family knew. And that funeral home was absolutely filled with laughter at her memorial service. And that's the kind of thing I mean. People do this pity thing. It's the biggest insult in the world to pity people. You can empathize if you want. Offer to listen. The compassionate friends put out a whole list of what you don't have to put up with as a grieving person. It's brilliant. And so when people are, have a funny memory, it's something that has to be encouraged, cherished, endorsed. When they can remember something that their children did that, and then their despair 
and non-humor about the addiction, we talk, we give them the freedom to talk about the rest of the stuff. And they have happy memories, happy thoughts, and it kind of gives them hope and it gives them relief. And quite frankly, there's nothing better than a good laugh anywhere. But that's what I think is really important. And it is part of spirituality. It really is. So I don't know if you wanted any more detail than that. As I said, I've got well, a million Well, I, I just think that's something that, um, you know, I, I think we're grief avoidant in our culture. And so I think it's just good for people to understand that um, you can talk to people about grief and that you can share humor with them and that if they want to tell a funny story about whatever yeah. their, their loss is, that that's okay. And I, I guess we all just have to learn how to be more comfortable with other people's losses. Well, you know, the problem is the Western culture is a culture full of people who want to fix everything. Well, you can't fix people's grief. You can't. It's their, it's their, that's their job. And um, have I put my foot in my mouth sometimes? You bet I have. But the thing is, I, I want to risk that. If it, the biggest, one of the biggest thrills in my life is to see a parent smile or laugh without feeling guilt. That is such an incredible experience. And it's part of my job to encourage them to see that these things were not their fault. They did the best that they could. Uh, And eventually they get it. But sometimes you really have to hammer them. The thing is that what we need to do as professionals is to to learn to really, really listen. And the other thing to allow them their, what some people call fantasies, I don't happen to believe that, I think they're real, where they say, you know what, I'm sure I saw my son in the mall. Well, you don't give them a lecture of that's not possible. You just say, hmm, then you probably did. And I have tons of stories on that. And you see, the thing is that what people don't understand are the things that call such stress that people don't think of. Like I ask people when I train them, what is one of the worst things for people to have to do after they've lost someone they dearly love to death? What, apart from that loss? And do you know what that is? No. Food shopping. Food shopping. I've had people just burst into tears, drop whatever they got in their baskets and run screaming out of the store because... The music that might be played meant something or their favorite food. And people don't understand these things. But it's everyday living that they have to get used to, whether they have an addicted person in their life or they've lost someone to death or, or in a divorce or something that's very, very dear to their hearts. And it's those, quote, unquote, ordinary things we have to understand as we have to understand laughter. The other thing is to understand that some people want to talk about it and some don't. Some people want to um, lay out tons of photographs and some people take all their photographs out of the room. It's such an individual thing. But unless you're willing to risk it and be fearless in this, this is not the profession for you. But you can still learn to understand it even if you don't do it. You can incorporate it in some other way. In, in your patients or your clients, whatever you call them. But the other thing is that I need that laughter for me to be able to do that work. I need that humor in my life. And, I, and because I'm, when I speak, I'm a very funny person. Um, 
that I've attracted the people in my life who are very funny people. And that's my balance. You must have a balance. This is critical work, so you need a balance in your own private life. And that's, that is the, really the strongest piece of recommendation that I can give you. But laughter is the best healer. There's nothing like a good belly laugh to make you feel better no matter what. That's true. That's mm-hmm. very true. Yep. So you talked a little bit about you wanted people to know there was hope. And um, and so I think what you've just shared with us is that, you know, grief is a process that that we get through and that it's it's okay and that there is hope to get beyond the pain of the grief that you're feeling? Absolutely. And remember, people make conscious decisions on the way they feel. That's a biggie. And to know that I am accountable for the way I am and what I see and what I feel gives us a strength. And it's so important. For What's important is to find the right person, a friend or anyone that you can just vent. I, I've created a scream list, and I, this is a scream list that you can call someone and just vent. They're not going to give you advice. They're just going to grunt at you going, mm-hmm, yeah, <laughs> but you've got it out of your system. And those screen lists are really great. You need at least three people or you're going to wear the other ones out. <laughs> well, that's three. great advice to end our show with um, today. This hour has flown by, and I want to thank you so much for sharing it with us. Um, you have a great message. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. You're welcome. And have a great week, everyone. Take care. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.